Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Good evening, good afternoon, good whatever, good whomever, good however I may find you. This is Alan Averill. This is Agitators Anonymous. Episode 70-something. So the eagle-eyed and maybe not so eagle-eyed of you may have noticed there was no podcast last week. Well, you may know that Primordial played two shows, the Prophecy Festival and Open Air in the Square in Essen. And I had a little bit of a technical difficulty and was away and did not have access to the platforms that upload the uh, podcast, and it just failed to upload for whatever dumb reason, whatever fault of my own. So we skipped a week. But quite frankly, maybe I needed a week off to recharge my batteries, so to speak. The will to make this podcast has been pretty low today. It's been on the back burner. It's Thursday evening in Dublin, and I've had... Quite a few things to say about this and that and the other, but in the end, record, delete, record, delete, etc., etc. Who knows what really is the right thing to talk about? This is Agitators Anonymous. I'm Alan Averill. This is episode, as I said, 70-something, 74, 73. Who knows? The collective Alzheimer's has kicked in, and I don't really know which number it is. So you can follow me on Instagram, Nemthianga underscore Primordial. We're, we're raising an army over there, although admittedly um, recruits have been pretty slow of late, but who knows why that may be. That could be my continuous rambling now that society seems to be sort of on some level moving in, shall we say, the right direction. Maybe the will, the flesh is weak, shall we say. Um, off the top... 
the show is sponsored by Metalblade.com. If you're in North America, go over and use the promo code ALAN and you will get 10% off your order. www.metalblade.com, www.eisenwald. Yes, Eisenwald Records, E-I-S-E-N-T-O-N dot D-E or dot com. And you can go and check out lots of cool black metal post whatever heathen black this and that kind of stuff. So what are we going to talk about today? This may be my long overdue and threatened ramble about Afghanistan. My ill-advised trek through the opium fields of Afghanistan. Well, why not? Why not? I mean, just remember, I ain't a historian. I'm a singer in a heavy metal band, but I will try and provide or let's ramble across a little bit of the history, a little bit of the reasons why some of the things are the way they are there in as much as I can attempt to understand them. That's what the main body of the podcast, I think, today will be. But quite a lot has happened. Some of you may have noticed my more positive could we say chipper demeanor, demeanor, blah, 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 demeanor after the show we played in London? Well, I guess that was to be expected. And after months of being relatively dour and negative about the whole situation, it was fair to allow a little sliver of light back in. Isn't that how we make things out in the shadows, but to allow a little bit of light back in? And of course, the two shows in Germany add to that as well, which is almost like a normal couple of weeks for um, a musician. I go into a bit more depth in that in, uh, over on my Patreon, uh, patreon.com, Alan Averill. But I will talk about those and many other things that have been happening around the music industry at length, um, perhaps next week or the week after, once I get this Afghanistan business that I've been promising out of the way. Now, does this mean that things move ahead positively and continue reopening? Well, it remains to be seen. It does somehow feel that the rhetoric, for example, from our state here on the Emerald Isle here in Ireland remains. Well, let's just say I think that it's changed in the last month. Maybe the quotas were met. Who knows? But it does feel that the 0% pushers have run out of a little bit of energy. Now, of course, I could be wrong, and in one month we could be moving backwards. We could be moving back towards another lockdown with the, as I said before, the monster energy pangolin unicorn variant. I don't know. Excuse my cynicism, but but at the moment it would seem that um, things are moving a little bit backwards. At least the city has more life to it. Um, and I think that even the most ardent authoritarian hiding in sheep's clothing in middle management might be a bit unnerved as to where, for example, the best kids in class Australia are going right now, uh, which is clear as the joke states back to its penal colony origins. Um, I can say that as an Irish person, as uh, one of the many um, one of the many brethren who populated the original penal colony. I think somehow it gives me the validity to say, no, of course it doesn't. But that is the joke that Australia is moving back to its penal colony origins. Try saying that first. Um, as new laws have been granted to the police to allow them to take control, I have that in parenthesis, which are rabbit ears if you did not know, over people's devices and social media accounts. And by all accounts, it seems to be celebrated by people in, people in positions of authority over there. The portents are insane. Absolutely insane. But remember, 
you will have no privacy, as you were told by the WEF last year. Did you forget them? The bogeymen at the feast. Well, but even Australia's rush headlong into police state status seems to now almost be something of a warning and not an aspiration. Certainly elements of our society who viewed them as the gold standard by which to deal with the emergency, as I keep saying, may now be looking on with a form of silent horror. Whereas countries like Denmark, Sweden, for example, among others, appear to be allowing restrictions to just quietly disappear, more or less completely over the coming weeks and months. Certainly travelling in recent months, I've seen full airports, full flights. Things are sort of quietly back to normal. And let's be honest, um, as I said before in the podcast, that if you're leaving the New World Order to be marching in goose step across your continent, would you really leave Ryanair employees as the first point of contact for that New World Order? You probably wouldn't. It's, shall I hasten to say, or shall I dare to say, above their pay grade. Um, And so countries like Denmark and Sweden appear to be allowing restrictions to disappear. Um, Variations on a theme across most of the rest of Europe, as people are telling me and talking to me about it. While it does seem that France and Germany are locked in some sort of old-fashioned saber-rattling, using elements of pandemic control as some form of proxy social skirmish to gain the upper hand. Hard to define, but feels like history as usual between the two main powers in Europe. Now that the UK is to all intents and purposes outside the tent pissing in instead of inside the tent pissing out at all the rest of us and some of us for the last 800 years. Yes, indeed. Um, Let's hope that slowly now we can begin to recover from our bout of collective hysteria. I'm sorry about that, Australia, and move back towards reopening. Let me acknowledge that admittedly a lot of my time this week has been spent listening to the new Iron Maiden album. Um... To just digress for a moment, mainly, um, along with Matter of Life and Death, perhaps the best since Brave New World. What are you talking about Iron Maiden for? We don't care about Iron Maiden. I care about Iron Maiden. Um, Okay, sure, the sort of great rehearsal recording technique is a little bit tiresome by now, and it would be great to hear the band again with some big 1985 vibe tones, but that doesn't seem to be the way that Kevin Shirley works. Um, The vocals are a bit low, they're a bit on the low side, and sometimes the follow, the guitar harmony stylings are a bit too sing-songy for me, I guess. People blame Yannick for that, but there's, you know, a good example is Death of the Celts, for example. Um, Just seems all a bit too sing-songy. But that's no doubt because of his dancing that he gets the blame, I guess. But overall, the tone is dark. It's dark. It's foreboding. Um, sure, every now and again you get some half-baked keyboard pieces moving in and rising underneath the music that seem a bit like an afterthought. The soft and mushy acoustic bass sound won't endear me to the process of dynamics. Um, and everything sounds like it could have done with a little bit of natural treatment or tweaking or mixing from someone outside of the uh, Iron Maiden camp. But I have to admit, it's taken up most of my aural Aural, oral, bandwidth, aural bandwidth this week. It's strange as I remember saving up pennies from doing gardening to buy somewhere in time when I was a kid, somewhere in 1986. And then the ritual always was to buy the new Iron Maiden album when it came out, Seventh Son, etc. in 1988. I do admit that I lost the habit 
when we come to Virtual Eleven and X Factor, but I regained the habit with Brave New World. And um, even though these new Iron Maiden albums are long and sprawling, um, that I still find an awful lot to be uh, gained from listening to them. So there you go. You can think about me saving up my pennies from a, as a kid doing gardening to buy somewhere in time. Um, not the most exciting story if you want a side salad of romance to go along with your triple vinyl 50 euro as a main course, then go ahead. Anyway, what was I saying? Um, firstly, and maybe I never made the separation clear enough. Um, this is my podcast, not the Primordial podcast. Primordial is five different individuals. I don't speak for them. This is the Alan Averill podcast, after all. Um, if, for example... I get to the Fat Elvis karaoke years of my career and I'm hawking half-baked versions of Empire Falls. You're doing it already, I hear some people say with a backing tape, then I think you can rightly accuse me of whatever hypocrisy you may want. Um, or I'm strumming an acoustic guitar and doing a King Dude, I would say fair call. What am I talking about? Who knows? Do I really have to talk about Afghanistan now? So... Let's get into a little bit of the meat. Let's get into a little bit of, of Afghanistan. And let's be clear, something so serious, well, it puts online squabbling into perspective. So let's drag a weary claw over Afghanistan. Like I said, I'm not a historian, but a singer in a heavy metal band. <clears throat> so what can we say? I think by now, um, even the most ardent Biden apologists must be seriously scratching their heads and wondering what the exit strategy there was, as the optics of the withdrawal somehow seemed even worse than Saigon in the 70s. Um, there is an incredible uh, Ken Burns documentary about Vietnam, which I would hastily advise to anyone to check out for real understanding of the schisms that appeared in American society in the late 60s, early 70s. And that answer an awful lot of today's questions. Um, really, they do. It's quite incredible. Maybe one of the greatest pieces of television ever but at the end, the exit from Saigon was an ignoble thing to view. And um, it kind of looked a bit like this this time, didn't it? Um, the Taliban simply waited the US out. They waited for 20 years for them to lose their nerve and patience. And don't forget, this is the 20th anniversary of 9-11 coming up, um, which was the pretense for the US invasion in the first place. How odd the world now is, we see the Taliban almost trolling us trolling the West, writing fairground attractions and posting them online before burning them to the ground. We saw the brave comedian mocking them to their face when they caught him, but they did then execute him. The US seemed to leave an arsenal behind and kind of said, well, we didn't leave the keys for it. But maybe all of this will simply be sent to China and Russia and dismantled and reverse engineered. Uh, more head scratching ensues. Nancy Pelosi asks the Taliban politely for some diversity in their new cabinet. Strangely enough, they didn't listen to her. How odd. China took to Twitter to mock the US, suggesting it will do nothing when they decide to annex Taiwan. Um, and you may remember when the WHO was instructing us all what to do and a reporter asked the representative about Taiwan as an example, the Chi the R. Ah, there's a Freudian slip. The WHO um, <clears throat> representative at the press conference refused to be drawn to the question because he could not say the name. Um, so there you go. 
China took to Twitter to mock the US, suggesting it will do nothing when they choose to annex Taiwan or whoever they may please. Um, not to say, of course, in a sense, they aren't doing it financially all across the Western world at this moment. Um, but the message it sent out was that the time for the US as the world superpower is over. Now, of course, there are those within the West who would rejoice at the idea, the online masochists, I would say, confused anti-imperialists or genuine anti-imperialists who seem to want to frame the Taliban as a noble army of anti-imperialists. I mean, it is possible to sort of view it like that. And, um, hey, they did say they were going to be friendly to women this time around, right? Um, the desire and rush to frame everything in terms of the modern political divide in the West is, to me at least, sickening. And the rush to rehabilitate the Taliban's image um, almost took an afternoon for some people to try and jump on board with um, in certain sections of the Western media. I mean, and this kind of spoke volumes. Maybe you didn't. You probably didn't. But years ago, I watched videos of child Taliban executioners um, shooting rows and rows of men in the head and allowing them bodies to just run down this little uh, slipway into a river. Um, crucifying people alive, stoning and beating women. Um, dig beneath the dirt and you can easily find this kind of horror. And it is horror. But man, don't like Trump, right? And that seems to be sort of where some of the frame kind of comes from, is that certain people seem to be... Um, so still caught up in the narrative um, of Orange Man Bad that they somehow wanted to reframe um, the withdrawal as some sort of small victory and also that the Taliban were sort of, I don't know, characters from Game of... you know, noble characters from Game of Thrones coming in to reclaim their land. Now, there's certainly an argument that you can frame like that, but you're skipping over all of the grim details that start in season two. Um, what do you mean I can't reframe them as noble warriors? You can if you want, but don't forget the rights you want to uphold for women, young girls, various minorities, whatever else you wish are rights that the West brought to Afghanistan. Check images of Kabul in the 50s and 60s and you can find women enjoying what you would consider to be Western freedoms, the kind you enjoy in the West. So which is it to be? Return them to... Sharia law or campaign for their Western freedoms, which I understand is a contradiction if you hate the West. But, you know, the contradiction is glaring and burning quite brightly. A friend of mine told me some dark, dark stories about when he was training the Afghan army over a decade ago, I guess 10, 15 years ago, and I sat doing shots with him and his um, buddies who had all done the same thing. And... Um, and the night when the whole uh, sorry episode was going down, I was talking to him and he said to me, um, well, it was the last days were basically upon us and the airlifting was going and we were seeing tragic, tragic, tragic um, footage of people trying to cling onto the underside of planes, all sorts of things. Kabul was basically falling. Um, Biden's 300,000 troop claim was clearly nonsense. Um, and he just told me, because that army ain't going to last at all. In fact, I don't think they're even going to fight. Now, first things first, many of them had simply just not been paid in uh, six months, a year, a year and a half longer. Are you really going to stand and fight when you've not been paid either? Probably not. That's the first sort of consideration, I think, 
people need to understand about um, the army that were left. There are some, there are some um, deeply uncomfortable truths about society there that no one really wants to address in the West. But if you've seen the documentary, This Is What Winning Looks Like, I think it's called. Like I said, I'm speaking off the top of my head here. So you're going to have to take some of the things that I'm saying. Um, do a little bit of digging. Um, I'm just speaking off the top of my head as a singer in a heavy metal band and not a historian. But um, this is what winning looks like. You might have the idea. As my friend said to me, most of the soldiers spent their time smoking weed and smoking opium. Um, Afghanistan was always a complex system of small fiefdoms separated by crazy geography, crazy mountainous landscapes, meaning thousands of small villages and thousands of warlords. Um, many dialects and complex rural tribal societal structures were what defined trying to deal with the country as an occupying force. And yes, I do mean an occupying force. What it seems they did share was, apart from the drugs, the inheritance of a society society that had pederastism right at its heart, i.e. in the middle of the night, the soldiers would trawl the local villages, scoop up young boys in the back of the trucks and more or less kidnap them, promise to train them in cases to their parents, sometimes not, um, more or less kidnap these people and um, subject the young boys to initiation period of being the garrison's uh, sex slaves, I kid ye not. He told me stories of coming in the morning to find young boys in dresses and makeup, made to sleep on the floor of dorm rooms, um, or, well, in full, like, uh, I suppose, John Benet-style makeup, um, sleeping on the floor of dorm rooms. And as in that documentary, the exasperated Marine tries to do something about this, and the local man says, find me a police chief who isn't fucking young boys um, it was done to them as kids and now they do it to other young men how did I get here from the new Iron Maiden album listen don't hold it against me it's late it's late it's late and when you talk to people who've been in Afghanistan this is a feature of their society and it's something in the West that no one quite really wants to address as at the heart of it it seems to partially explain some of the woman hating and ingrained misogynism that is it would seem deeply ingrained in the Taliban um, thousands of Men for years on their own in the Tora Bora caves. Hmm, anyway. Now, of course, I'll get pelters for retelling this story, but I sat with a bunch of soldiers a few years ago who all told me the same thing about being in Afghanistan and that the army were utterly useless. And that night, as it all went south, my friend was laughing on the other side of the Zoom call or whatever it was and said, they won't put up a fight. And he was right. I mean, of course, what the fuck was anyone doing there in the first place? It's beyond complex. Um, and I'll try and sort of scrape a brief potted history over it as um, we try and put some sort of sense making into um, the history. Or at least to understand that history just keeps repeating itself. <clears throat> it's complex. And it starts in the 1830s. The Dutch East India Company were essentially the first, well, I suppose what we would call them multinational Um they were, yeah, I suppose we would call them that now, a sort of multinational corporation, the British Empire's trading post in India. Actually, that's just the East India Company, isn't it? Not the Dutch East India Company. Um, and there was no border with Afghanistan, um, which had not been an empire for roughly a thousand years. Just as I said, small fiefdoms that still survive to this day. Once part of the Stan Empire, I know, sounds kind of funny, and a Mughal Empire before that, the mighty Mughal Empire, yes, there were indeed empires before the West had 
their own versions of them. Um, <clears throat> so I'm going to kind of butcher the history a little bit, but I think it's sort of interesting to rake a claw over, as I said. It really boils down to the, Brit the British Empire at the time protecting their trading routes via the um, East India Company. And don't forget, India was the second centre of the empire's power, I suppose. There, um, they called it the jewel in the crown or whatever you want to say, um, which, you know, sort of protected all their interest across the other side of the world. Um, and they were looking for new trading routes to the north and the lawless region of, of Afghanistan. You know, I say lawless, but that's the sort of um, typical thing that people say. But more importantly, watching um, Russian expansionism, which was beginning to take much more shape in the 1820s, 1830s. And don't forget, we're talking about post-Napoleonic European attitudes. Um, you know, I mean, I'm not going to start talking about Napoleon now, but certainly um, the Napoleonic Wars shaped an awful lot of European attitude post those years. But um, in the 1830s, a man called Alexander Burns uh, wrote Travels to Burara, uh, if I'm not mistaken in the name, about his journeys across across Afghanistan. And it became something of a hit, I suppose. He lived in Kabul, extolled the beauty of the country and wrote sort of lovingly about the people. But his travels were also translated, if I'm not mistaken, into Russian. And the whole affair began to pique Russian interest as they were expanding their empire um, <clears throat> westwards. And um, the British wondering what the British Empire was doing on their right, on their borders. Because, you know, Russia had, I suppose, um, proper influence in what we would now call Uzbekistan, other countries like this. Um, but Afghanistan was the Islamic country right on their borders, I suppose. And they sent their spies in. There was a whole sort of um, spy, let's call it sort of James Bondy kind of game going on. They called it the Tournament of Shadows. Any power metal bands listening are quite um, you can you can steal that if you want. And it all sounds a bit boys' own reading it back now. Not boys' own, but boys' own. Wow, I'm showing my age with this old reference. <clears throat> but there's a sense of proper spying intrigue to proceedings. The great game, they called it. What became of Alexander Burns? Well, my dears, his head was placed on a spike in the bazaar outside Kabul. Um, and so the stories of Russian influence sort of reached the movers and shakers back in London. People who had never been to Afghanistan knew nothing of the culture, of the people, of the religion. Sound familiar? And despite Burns' protestations, obviously pre-head on Spike, um, before his head appeared on the Spike, yeah, they sent in many, many troops. Um, and many English troops started to arrive in Kabul in the 1830s, mid, I suppose, mid to late 1830s, as the first Anglo-Afghan war, as it was called, um, or the disaster in Afghanistan, as it became to be known, was between 1839 and 1842. But the build-up of troops was a little bit before that, and many assuming their own boys' own adventure, peacocking around the city. Of course, the locals had never seen anything like that. Burns and his people had worn the local headdresses, the local garb, lived among the Afghans, tried to understand their ways, spoke their language, understood the tribal customs. As I said before... We are doomed to repeat history. The English set up garrisons, set themselves apart from the locals. Jihad. And in 1839, we had rebellion. Um, initially, the British successfully intervened in a succession dispute. Um, and I guess some of you may have read the book All the Shah's Men. 
Um, it's a very interesting book and kind of, um, just to digress for a moment, I think the Shahs were, I suppose, a sort of royal class that across the Middle Eastern um, and I suppose North, Northern, Northern Middle Eastern countries, um, the Shahs were a sort of a monarchical class, a hereditary peered um, class of kings and queens, something like this, that the West thought they could deal with and that they should um, depose many of the um, democratically elected um, governments. For example, Mossadegh in Iran in the 1952 and the CIA's deposition of him um, and all the, the Shahs were basically, I suppose, the sort of West's um, stooges who they um, put in positions of power across the Middle East that they felt they could have control of. Bloody bloody blah, blah, blah. Moment of digression. Um, and so the first Afghan, what shall we call it? You know, the Anglo-Afghan War. Oh, excuse me. The Afghan-Anglo War. Um, and this delivered, the Afghan army delivered the greatest ever defeat to the British Empire. Um, one of the greatest ever, but certainly the greatest of the 19th century. Probably the greatest ever. The first foreign power to defeat a colonial army. The story goes that one man in the retreat from Kabul, yes, one of, um, in 1842, this is the myth anyway, one man arrived of the 17,800 who had set out from Kabul um, in a harsh winter across five days of trekking. They had been, um, I suppose in some sort of form of pincer movement as they wound their way through the valleys. Very easy for people who understand the terrain to hide, disappear, attack, as the Americans and the Russians found out much after that. Um, and everyone, women, children, over a five-day trek were massacred. And reports came back to the newspapers um, from one eyewitness and which shocked the public. Outrage. But... By 1842, the, you know, it sort of sparked the end or sparked the end. It was the beginning of the end of the British interest in Afghanistan at that time. And don't forget also by 1854, you have Russian imperialism is growing. You've got Crimea um, and um, the slow coalition of an Islamic re armed response to the invaders, I guess, grew after 1842. And it's still considered this great historical battle. Um, and one could call them the spiritual heirs to the Taliban. Um, in 1857, we have the Indian War of Independence in a form of colonial uprising. Um, but this marks the end of the British East India Company. Um, the history is long and complex, and I've probably ruled things out there or fucked things up. But certainly it placed Pakistan right beside Afghanistan as, um, I, I suppose, some sort of strange um, spiritual buffer zone. Um, which will come into play after that. But the history is long and complex. What it shows is that we seem doomed to repeat the same mistakes. We all heard the stories about members of the US cabinet before the invasion of Iraq, not really understanding what Sunni and Shia were, the divisions in Islamic society, in ways similar to an Islamic army invading Ireland and not really understanding the difference between Catholic and Protestant, as if no one ever did that before, and then wondering why they were tearing strips off each other but that rebellion caused the eventual demise of the British in the region. It showed the Islamic opposition that they just had to wait out invaders. And that was, and that was what, exactly what happened. Um, and it just echoed the same mentality. 
So, excuse me, while I, I'm going to skip ahead a few decades, but the country is neutral in World War I, and there was a relative peace in the country from the 1920s, almost up to the 70s. I mean, of course, I'm skipping ahead because I want to get to the, want to get to the juicy Mujahideen. However, I'm going to make a small little diversion, courtesy of the author Terry Glavin, of something that I think is pretty sort of odd and quite interesting and might just make a little weird little bit in the podcast that I think is sort of, well, it's very odd. In the 1930s, um, the Third Reich had the largest diplomatic corps in Kabul. Um, Afghan soldiers had German military outfits, some of them, and they had Ariana Airlines, not Ariana Grand, but uh, derived from the word Aryanism. Very, very strange. And there was a sort of deep pathology in the Pashtun. That's one of the main tribal areas on the southern border. Um, a sort of deep pathology in the Pashtun tribal areas. And um, there was a town called Balk, 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 which was the capital of the Greco-Bactrian Empire. One of Adam's sons, Seth, is said to be buried there. It's the um, birthplace of Zoroastrianism, where, if I'm not incorrect, that is where um, writing came from, or is that Sumerians? Okay. Well, anyway, the uh, the Nazis themselves were said to have really liked the place. They really liked the place. Um, and they sought to elevate the Pashtun presence in the, in the city. And they had plans to build this sort of like a sort of Paris-style city on the uh, around it. And they even drew up plans. And... This seems really, really strange. But today in northern Af- Afghanistan, it's wholly uncontroversial to see the Taliban as some sort of spiritual heirs to the form of Pashtun supremacy, which was elevated and, um, I suppose, sought by the Nazis. How very, very strange history can be. But like I said, you've probably seen the photos of women attending college wearing skirts in the 50s and the 60s with no um, burqas, all this kind of stuff. And they had a ruler, um, a post-Second World War, I suppose, between war and post-war, it can't have been the same ruler. Um, But he did try and modernise, wanted elements of the West, wanted new technologies. Afghanistan tried to move forward for the country, wanted educational emancipation for women, of course, he was kind of seen a bit as a laughing stock within the country for courting Western values. Um, and it seemed the writing was on the wall for him when, I kid you not, his wife appeared in something akin to a photo glamour shot. Hmm. That said, he would have been too old. Maybe I got that wrong. Um, must have been the next guy. Uh, anyway, like I said, this is a sort of potted claw scrape across society. What it does point to again and again is the position of women in Afghan society. Um, they've always it would seem to me from the outside inhabited something of a lower place in the internal caste system. And even though many people tried to move the country to um, westernize, I suppose, to in, in integrate technology into society, uh, the rural tribal nature of the country just constantly reacted to it, um, which still persists to this day. And one thing that really surprised me was um, if we move to the modern day, I'm trying to get, I'm trying to rush ahead to the 1970s and 1980s. But there was an actual communist uprising in the mid 1970s, right on the borders with Russia, and you'd kind of think that the Russians would be sort of happy. But the internal memos released from the Brezhnev era suggest the Russians didn't really want a newly minted communist state right on their borders. Um, they seem to understand, in a way others maybe quite didn't, the religious. 
um, the religious angle. Uh, and the Russians knew that this might spark some form of a civil war and that the atheism at the heart of communism was not going to sit well with an ancient religious society. The communist insurrectionists, of course, went round with their little black books, and I use that phrase surreptitiously, after the coup, starting the process of murdering, murdering opposition leaders and re-education. Um, how is your re-education going, by the way? Anyway, the normal, the new normal. It's not hard to see Brezhnev's face going full face palm. And in the newly minted communist state, the leaders wanted some muscle on the ground and they wanted their um, red brothers and sisters across the border to come over and lean into what was happening. So, the Islamic, um, let's call them the um, Islamic opposition to this communist insurrection began to stir up the tensions of a, of a internal civil war. So in 1979, the Russians invaded the country and so began a 10-year proxy war, um, which is a, a war between the US and America on um, other people's soil, like a proxy war, um, funding either side um, the mud, with the Mujahideen. Um, the Americans, I guess, saw an opportunity to hand the Russians a bloody nose on their own doorstep and began to fund the Islamic resistance movement, who were called the Mujahideen. Russian soldiers, of course, had never fought on terrain like this and so were mired now in a decade-long war with no end in sight. Gorbachev came in after Brezhnev, if I'm not missing someone out, and wanted them out in 85, but it took another four years for them to manage to extricate themselves from Afghanistan. And when the tanks rolled back across the border, back to the motherland, um, communism had fallen or was falling. And the soldiers returned to a rather different country. For the record, the Mujahideen are the forerunners to the Taliban, I suppose. We could call the Taliban the children of the Mujahideen fighters who were radicalised and brought up over the borders in Pakistan in the religious madras schools. Have I got that right? Maybe. Um, stateless kids, trained, armed and ready to return home and wage jihad, trained and armed by the United States, beginning to get the idea now. Ha. Foreign powers just... Well, they make the same mistake again and again. The 1980s was a proxy war set to the backdrop of the Cold War, like many others around the world. Um, and bin Laden, Al-Qaeda, the Mujahideen, all of them were funded by the US. So the horrific irony of the US disappearing with a tail between their legs after 20 years, as they did the other week, I suppose, following the post-9-11 invasion where they were fighting, literally, the children of the men they had armed and funded. I'm not sure if that's irony um, it's tragic, it's tragicomic, it's worse than all of it. And fuck knows how soldiers who have fought there in 20 years felt when they just saw um, the complete bungling uh, exit the other night. I have no idea, or a day or whatever, I have no idea how that must have felt um, as if there had been just a complete pointlessness to what had taken place for the previous 20 years and really realistically the 80s before that and here we are is there any good time for an occupying force to leave I mean for me to wax geopolitical um, but it see but it did seem that three four thousand troops on the ground had held the line previous to this but the press conference where the US spokesman was asking for people trapped in Afghanistan to text her or text them I mean, look, essentially, this is about as high farce as it can get. And I suppose there was no doubt I would guess 
tens of thousands of people trapped, if not more, hundreds of thousands. There must have been hundreds of thousands of foreign people there in Afghanistan. Foreign envoys, assistants, translators, people who work for the state and government who now face life under the Taliban and they face a potentially grisly fate. Um, like I said, dig up some of the greatest hits from the Taliban if you want from the 2000s, but be warned, you might not like the drum sound. Are they going to do any new songs on the next tour? I don't know. Has anyone got a set list? What all of this does is signpost to the decline of America and the West and their influence in geopolitics and points to the coming dominance, I think, really, of China and we can probably say India coming in the next 20, 30 years or less. Um, you know, but death to the patriarchy and all that. But be careful what you wish for because I think is more pertinent and, like I said, dig up some old albums from the Taliban. The demos are the most brutal. Um... It's a bit of a late night skip over the history of Afghanistan, but the takeaway is, as they called it, the graveyard of empires, where empires went to die. Um, it's about the geography, the terrain. It's about the rural tribal fiefdoms and um, small, tiny kingdoms. It's about the thousands of warlords. Um, it's about a patchwork of tribalism that crisscrossed the entire society. Um, it is also about impenetrable geography and mountainous regions that where soldiers had never really attacked before and didn't know how to wage warfare and wage warfare against who? A ghost army who just appeared and then disappeared and that was it a ghost army with incredible patience who just waited out their occupiers and like it or not the idea that somehow the West can just deliver Western-style democracies to other countries and it just sticks it just takes, and that's what the people want and do not resist, is itself, a, I suppose, a form of colonialism, a form of um, inverted imperialism or something like this. The idea that somehow the West knows best. Um, it just doesn't stick in every country, and there you have it. The graveyard of empires, Afghanistan, just does what it always did. It just spits the occupiers back out and leaves them... Um, in a, a bit of a, a bloody mess, I suppose. And so it proved to be once again. Um, but I suppose the takeaway, maybe for people who haven't really looked too deeply into it, is that the people who, you know, the Taliban are the, I suppose, the spiritual uh, sons of that um, Afghan, you know, uh, Anglo-Afghan war in 1839 to 1842, the first Islamic um defenders of that state but don't forget that when you look down the um, the menu let's call it of all the weapons they inherited it's no different from some of the weapons realistically just with modern more modern technology from some of the weapons they were given in the 1980s to fight the Russians so many of the same people were trained armed and ready by um, the United States anyway what am I talking about I should just stay in my lane shouldn't I yeah you're probably right. So if you've come here looking for a statement about Steelfest, for example, let's address the elephant in the room. The statement is, there is no statement. The band stepped down. Like I said, this is the Alan Averill podcast. It is not the primordial podcast. I am not my brother's keeper, nor any band's keeper, for that matter. And so those two things must be seen to be separate. Primordial is our life's work. So it's easy to comment from the sidelines when you don't know the full story. That's all I will say. At some stage, 
um, when it's possible to have a, a reasonable, rational conversation about it, I'll do something about it here. But for now, there are things I just am unable to comment on. Listen, my friends, this one was a late night um, scrape of the claw across a few different things. There may be a short break in the podcast. There may not be. Um, I need to, you know, regain a little bit of energy enthusiasm for the whole uh, emergency. But this is Agitators Anonymous. This is episode 70-something. It is my several-week-promised scrawl over the history of Afghanistan. Um, And the new Iron Maiden album? Well, my friends, Agitators Anonymous, over and out. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.